0: My name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. You ever been riding, you know that saying, changing horses in midstream? No, you're getting off the horse in the middle of the river and your chances are you're going to fall in. Well, I'm changing horses in midstream, so to speak, this morning. It's funny how the Holy Spirit leads us and we have a tendency just to push back and not want to listen. And uh, I had so much material this morning to cover and uh, I was going to try, I wanted to try to finish Paul's arguments today, but I'm just, I'm not going to do it. So I'm going to divide this message into two. And uh, so we're going to divide this message into the first thing. My, Chris, the first thing my wife said to me when she sat down, she said, if you want to save yourself time in the service, don't have them read like that. And uh, because she goes, and again, it's okay if I say this. It, she's My wife, I can throw her under the bus, right? She goes, it sounds like blah, 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 blah. And you know, the truth is I feel the same thing and I'm teaching this passage, right? That it just, it just is this, you know, Galatians is hard for us to understand. I think all of what Paul is nuancing in, in what he's writing to this church or to these churches, I should say. And, and so anyway, all that to say, I'm going to, to divide this message into, in into I'm going to try to do it on the fly. So we'll see how that goes. I was going to tell you this morning that I wasn't going to dive in the deep end of the pool. I was going to dive in the shallow end of the pool. And what I meant by that was, I was using it as a metaphor, I I was not going to go maybe as deep as you'd like to go in this text. And I'm still not doing that. Uh, I'm still going to be somewhat superficial in these arguments. But I do want you to understand The letter uh, to the Galatians. And I feel like I need to catch us up in context. We weren't in Galatians last week. There's a lot of new faces here this morning that haven't been here for the study so far. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit. I'm going to catch us up contextually, which I think hopefully will make what we're talking about today make sense uh, and maybe help you understand the letter to uh, these churches in Galatia. So one part of us are two apostles, and they have been working in a a city called uh, Syrian Antioch, it's in north of Israel. It's not even it's not even a Jewish town. And a church has been planted, and they leave there, and they leave there, and their purpose is to go and make disciples of other areas. And so they go to what is present day Turkey, and it was called Galatia then. And they leave behind, in little town after little town, this these churches, and that area is known as Galatia. Now, after they've left there, the churches have been started. And after they've left, some other men come behind them to these churches. And these men didn't believe in Jesus. But uh, they tell these churches, listen, Paul didn't tell you the truth. Because the whole truth is you have to believe in Jesus. You have to believe he's the Messiah. But you also have to become an Israelite. You have to become part of the name of Israel. And you have to keep the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. You need to keep that covenant in all of its ramifications, all of its expectations. God instituted that covenant under Moses. And so you need to do the things of that covenant. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the Israelite nation's feast days. You need to eat certain foods. You need to keep the Sabbath as it's prescribed. And on and on and on. They go and they tell them that Paul just didn't tell them all the truth. We'll talk about the Sinai covenant for just a moment, because you need need to understand the difference between the Sinai covenant and the Abrahamic covenant, because Paul is going to compare these covenants all throughout this letter. So let's talk about the Abrahamic covenant first. This is a covenant that God made with a man named Abram. He changed his name later to Abraham, but he was just a a Joe like you and me. And he was living there in, in Mesopotamia, I think it was, but he loved God. He loved God, and God said to him one day, Abraham, follow me, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And Abraham was obedient. He followed God, picked up his family, and he said, I don't know where I'm going. God's leading me, but I'm going to a land that God's going to create for me and my family. And so he follows God. And God God is impressed with Abraham's faith. He leads Abraham to a place. And then one day he takes Abraham outside and he says, look at the stars. He says, your descendants will be as many as the stars. And I'm gonna bless you, Abraham. And out of you, I'm gonna bless all the nations of the world. And God makes a unilateral covenant with Abraham. You know what unilateral means? It means it's not a two-sided covenant. It's not like a conditional covenant. A conditional covenant is if you do this, then I'll do this. All right? This is a this is a unilateral covenant. God makes it with himself. He just simply promises Abraham, this is what I'm gonna do with you. And then to illustrate that for Abraham, he puts him asleep and he does this little thing in a in, in, in a dream for Abraham where Abraham sees so what they did to ratify a covenant in those days, they would sacrifice an animal, put the pieces on the ground, and the two people, the two parties of a conditional covenant would walk through the pieces, and they would say at the end, kind of like a ritual, they would say, may God do to me like that if I don't, kill me like that if I don't keep my end of the bargain, right? This covenant, Abraham doesn't walk, Abraham doesn't walk through the pieces of the, of the dead animal, God alone walks through the pieces of the dead animal. God's making a unilateral covenant with Abraham. And um, and Paul is going to argue. Now listen, this is really, really important. That God is, Paul is going to argue in this letter, and the whole New Testament argues to this end, all right? That the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant isn't going to be found in the biological children of Abraham but rather in the children of Abraham who are there by faith. I'm going to repeat that. It's so important that you get, I know maybe, maybe I'm going over some of your heads. This is all new to you. Hang in there. Hopefully some of it will make sense. But for most of you, you should get what I'm saying. Paul is arguing in this letter And the New Testament argues that the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham wasn't going to be Zach and his uh, children and his grandchildren. It wasn't going to be in the biological children of Abraham, but rather it was going to be in the children of Abraham who would be by faith, not biology. So I'm going to see if I can't prove that to you as we go through the letter of Galatians today. The Sinai covenant God made with the people that came out of Egypt, most of them were descendants of Abraham. Remember Abraham's descendants had gone to Egypt. They'd been enslaved and they'd been enslaved for 400 years. They come out of Egypt after those 400 years. 400 years. We're, we're only just barely over 200 years, I think. 250. Isn't that what we are? Something like that? Or maybe it's more than that now. I'm getting old. But, but our country's less than 300 years old, right? They were enslaved for 400 years. And these descendants of Abraham come out of Egypt, but it's not just them. It's a bunch of Egyptians come out too. Read it. So a bunch of Egyptians and a bunch of Israelites, a bunch of descendants of Israel, they come out of Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai and God makes a covenant with that group of people. And this is not a unilateral covenant. This is a conditional covenant. This is a covenant that if you do this, then I'll do this. And here's the covenant that God makes with Those people coming out of Egypt, most of them descendants of Abraham and and, uh, and Isaac and, uh, and Jacob, thus Israel. So these people coming out, he makes a covenant. Here's the covenant. If I be your God, if you will love me and serve me, if you will follow the covenant that we're going to make now, I will be your God and I will bless you. I will bless you like you won't believe, and I will protect you. I will guide you. I will keep you. And listen to this, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests to the world. I'm going to make you, this is what God's intention was with the nation of Israel that he is forming that day, right? And by the way, you didn't have to be just of the descendants of Abraham to be a part of the nation of Israel. Anybody could join this nation. Gentiles could go into, they had to go through a process, but anybody could join this nation. And when the nation was first founded, it was made of Gentiles, some Gentiles from Egypt, along with the descendants of Israel. And so this was a conditional covenant, and basically God was, I believe everybody would agree with this, that what God was doing was establishing a nation, a strange nation, a different nation that ate different foods and didn't cut their hair, and they circumcised uh, the men, and they, they just were different, and the whole point was that the rest of the world would then See them and say, wow, your God must be God because of all the wonderful things that are happening to you. All What God is doing for you, your God must be God. It's like when Jesus calms the water on, the, on the, the, uh, the storm, right? When they're on the boat, or he's walking on water. or Remember those times? What does it say the disciples did when he did that? It says they worshiped him. Why? Because he must be God because he's controlling the storms. And so it's it's sort of like this, God was saying, I'm going to make you this nation that all the rest of the world will envy and all the rest of the world will say, yes, yes, your God is the only true God. Like Naaman, remember Naaman? Naaman was the guy who came from, I think it was Syria, he had leprosy. And when Elisha, I believe it was Elisha, heals him, he basically says, your God is the only, how about Nebuchadnezzar? When, when, what happens to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, remember he says, your God is the only God there is. So when God shows up, people see it and they know he's the only God. And the, and the whole idea was with this conditional covenant that God made with that nation that he formed, he basically said, everybody's going to know that I am God, but here's the condition for you to be my people and for you to be this nation. You must follow me and love me. You must keep my covenant. And if you know your Bible history, you know that from the beginning, they would would not follow him in spite of all the things that he did. They were continually rebelling so that he was continually sending them prophet after prophet after prophet, and they wouldn't listen. And then he would take and he would exile them out of, it, out of the land that he said was going to be their land. He said, here's the land I've got for you, but I'm going to remove you from there. And for 70 years, he removes them from the land. And his whole goal was that when he brought them back, they might continue to follow him. And indeed, I tell you, if you don't know this, after the Babylonian exile of 70 years, Israel never really, the nation of Israel never really struggled with uh, idolatry in the sense of creating idols for themselves like they used to do, right? However, even after the Babylonian exile, they were constantly turning away from, from, from the Lord and to the point where God sent them prophet after prophet after that. And then 400 years of silence. And then God finally sends his son to them and they reject him and they murder him and they kill him. This is where some of you might not agree with me, but I believe this is the point of Galatians. I'm I'm shortening my message, so I'm lengthening my, my intro because I want this to be really... I think if you get this, you'll understand the letter better, okay? With the death of Jesus, Paul is saying... Jimmy's not saying... Paul is saying God rescinded the Sinai covenant and rejected Israel as his nation and made a new covenant with whom Paul says is the true Israel. If you doubt that, let me see if I can't prove that for you. At least if I'm not going to prove it for you this morning, because I know... I'm, I'm trying not to say it out loud, but I'm touching on to some stuff that some of y'all are already saying. I very much disagree with you, and that's fine. You know, we, we, we're we all doing our best to understand what God is saying, but the point of the letter of the of, to the Galatian churches Paul is making is that God has a new Israel, and his new true Israel is his Israel by faith. It's the son's of Abraham, who are not by blood, who are not by sperm and egg, but rather by faith. And God is instituting a a new Israel. So Paul would say in Romans chapter 9, he would say, it's not as if all of Israel is Israel. What does he mean by that? Well, he means there's definitely two different kinds of Israels. There's Israel that is the nation of Israel that he formed, okay, that's composed mostly of of descendants of Jacob, Israel. But there is another Israel that I'm going to say to you is the true Israel of God. And the true Israel of God is the Israel that is by faith. And it's composed of both Gentiles and Jews. Should have said mostly by Jews for so so long, but then eventually uh, more Gentiles even than than Jews, So the author of the book of Hebrews would say of the Sinai covenant that God made with Israel, he would say, this covenant has become obsolete and is being done away with. Now Peter would pick up on this same theme. And so Peter, in one of his letters, would say to the followers of Jesus, you are God's new nation, a holy nation, a royal nation. Priesthood. Does that sound familiar? You're a kingdom of priests. That was exactly what he said to this nation that he formed back at Sinai. You are a kingdom of priests. Peter turns around and now says to the people of God who follow Jesus by faith, you are a new nation, a royal priesthood. You are now my nation that is going to go into the world and when people see God at work in your life, they're going to know that you that you, that your God, the God you follow is the true God. We're to represent God to men. And, and, and we are living stones in his temple. You see, the temple of the first covenant was destroyed. Jesus said it will be destroyed. Not one stone's going to be left on top of another. And it was destroyed. And then he said, I'm going to raise up a new temple in three days. And I suggest to you that the temple that he was speaking about is not the temple of his body, but he was talking about the temple of his people, where Peter would say, we are living stones in this temple made with brick, not made with brick and mortar, but with people. And our guide in this new covenant, our guide is not the old covenant, the Sinai covenant laws, but rather the guide to the new, in the new covenant. Listen, It is the spirit of God that guides us in the new covenant. He lives within us and he is the one who guides us. Now don't hear me saying he contradicts the word. He contradicts the things that God has already revealed. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that our guide is not so much a written code anymore. He says, Paul makes this point over and over and over again. He's given us his spirit on the inside to lead us. Now I'm not going to get to, I got three, I got three gifts that I wanted to share with you at the end. I'm not going to get to the last one. So I want to insert something here. You know, when I talked about this a few weeks ago and uh, one of the elders came up to me afterwards and I can't remember exactly what I said, uh, but he was, he was pushing back uh, in a good way on what I said. In fact, I I, I walked away from that saying, boy, I wish I had thought of that. You're exactly right. The, the code, the written code of the old covenant that he made, that God made with his people, Israel, the nation back then at Sinai. The covenant said, thou shalt not murder, right? But the spirit of God tells us, it's not just that we don't murder. The spirit of God tells us we're not to hate. We're, isn't that right? Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, it's not just that you don't murder. You don't hate. You don't call your brother a fool. Or are you not to commit adultery? That's in the written code, right, of the, of the first covenant. Yeah, but to see, the Spirit of God comes along and says, it's not just that you don't commit adultery. You don't lust after someone who's not your spouse. And on and on and on it goes. The Spirit of God takes The laws of God that were written in that covenant and he leads us, not in contradiction to the things that God has morally set up, but the spirit of God leads us in a way that he speaks to our heart. I mean, even this week, I'm I'm sitting there this morning and I'm thinking, yeah, the spirit kept leading me. You got too much information. Stop, stop, stop. Don't do this. But I kept pressing on anyway. Now I'm trying to be obedient and it's so much harder because... I'm having to, you know, but anyway, we, we, we walk by the spirit. And if you just think with me for just a moment, if you just think about all the times in the scripture that it tells us that we walk by the spirit, that we listen to the spirit, that we've been given the spirit as a gift, he's within us and he's how much better. I'll, I'll probably say this again next week. Cause this is one of those gifts I want to tell you about, but how much better is it if I have a map, isn't it so much better to have someone sitting in the car with me saying, hey, yeah, the map says this, but this is a shortcut. Go this way. Oh, and by the way, down the road there, there's blockage on that road. Turn here so we can get there faster than... It's mean, so much better having somebody who's got in the know sitting right there beside me rather than just following a map. And If you don't believe me, go somewhere you've never been and use your GPS and you'll go around your toe to get to your nose, right? Because the GPS will lead you all kinds of places that, you know. you know, it's just doing what... The Spirit of God lives within us. Let me move on. These men come, and, and by the way, I wrote something here. Jesus hinted at this. I mean, he was constantly hitting, hinting at it. When, when he said, you don't, put old, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. I'm creating a new covenant. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm putting that one behind me and I'm creating a new covenant. You don't put new one. But listen to this. I was watching The Chosen the other day, and it just lit me up. It was the story of the Samaritan woman. Think about the Samaritan woman, right? Remember her? There by the well. Do you remember what happens? She goes, hey, we Samaritans say we worship right here. You say it has to be in the temple there in Jerusalem. Which is it? What did Jesus say? There's coming a time really soon where it won't be here Or there, But you will worship God in spirit anywhere because it's going to be a heart matter, not not the, the material, physical stuff of the first covenant. It's going to be, I'm going to put my spirit in you and it's just going to be different. And he's hinting at the fact of what Paul is trying to tell the Galatians, that you don't need to go back to the Sinai covenant. God is putting that behind him and he's moving on in this new covenant. Paul's disappointed that they've listened to these men. And he writes this letter as a challenge to them, hopefully to correct them where they're wrong. So let's kind of review real quick. Chapters 1 and 2 are a defense of Paul himself, his ministry and what he taught. If you missed that, you can go back and listen to that. But he defends himself and tells them why they should be listening to him. In chapter 3, which the last time we were together, we looked at the first 14 verses of chapter 3. And this begins, now listen, there are seven arguments, four left. We looked at three, four left. I was planning to cover all four. We're only going to do two today, okay? And we'll do the other two next Sunday. But at chapter three, he begins with seven arguments, seven arguments as to why they should not seek to add back the first covenant, the Sinai covenant, to what Jesus has done. He, he's going to try to convince them the Sinai covenant is not, is not what we're doing anymore. We, we've got a new covenant in Jesus, and he's going to give you seven, seven arguments why that's true. Now, the first time we looked at, there was three arguments. The first argument was from experience. Remember he said, when you believed in Jesus, God did miracles in your midst. Your, your experience should tell you you don't go back and seek to live by the, by the Sinai covenant. The second argument was from Abraham himself, how Abraham was declared righteous by faith. The third argument was that if you want to go back to the law, the law demands death. And since none of us can keep it, the punishment of the law is death. And that's why we're not going back to that, because Jesus already set us free from the death that the law required. And, uh, and so those were his first three arguments. We're going to pick them up. We'll pick up the next two. Uh, we're going to begin in chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 15. So here we go. This is argument number four, or argument number one for today. But argument number four, and Paul's arguing. And ar- this is an argument from God's covenant with Abraham. So it's similar to what he's already touched on. Chapter 3, verse 15, in the book of Galatians. Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration no one sets aside or makes additions to the validated human will. And that's will like is in a covenant will. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Messiah or the Messiah. My point is this, the law the Sinai covenant, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel out the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, if our our walk with God, our inheritance with God is based on that law 430 years later, Uh, It is no longer based on the the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. So here's his argument. It's really simple. I'm not going to go deep, but here's his argument. The Sinai covenant came 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant. And he says the Abrahamic covenant was unilateral. It was a promise from God. Your descendants are going to outnumber the stars and I'm going to bless you. And out of you will come a a nation. And it says, Abraham believed God. And what does it say next? And God credited to Abraham righteousness because he had faith, because he believed God. Here's Paul's argument. God credited Abraham righteousness by his faith. The law, which comes 430 years later, it's not, it's not removing what God promised. This, has been, this was his second argument too, right? This is similar to his second, second argument. God is not removing the promise that if we put our faith in God he will give us righteousness. Righteousness doesn't come because we keep the law, he's saying, because if it did, then it would do away with the promise that God made to Abraham, that if you just believe me, I will credit it to you as righteousness. Now, Paul makes a point that when God made this promise to Abraham and to his seed, he says he he didn't use the word seeds although this is where we're not going to dive in the deep end of the pool. You can ask me about it later because there, there is somewhat problematic. But most everybody, most everybody sees Paul as saying that when God made that promise to Abraham and to his seed, he was making it to Abraham and to the Messiah who would eventually come and be the blessing, blessing to all nations. And so Paul is saying this law that came, for, this Sinai covenant that God made with the nation, with the nation he formed 430 years later, it doesn't do away with God's promise to bless Abraham and to credit Abraham and consequently all of his descendants credit us with righteousness on the basis of faith, not on the basis of us keeping that law, which came so many years later. All right. That's his next argument. Here's his here's fifth argument. This is an argument from the purpose of the law. Did you follow me? I know this isn't interactive, but did you follow me? Okay. That wasn't a very hearty, yeah, we followed. (laughs) Ask me afterwards. An An argument from the purpose of the law, verse 19. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. So the seed in this case would be Jesus in Paul's thinking, right? The, the, why was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Maybe I should stop there and just talk about that for just a second. Should I do that? Let's, let's, let's take just those first few verses, kind of just walk through it. Why was the law given? All right, so if the law isn't how we become righteous before if keeping the Sinai covenant like the, like the Jews did for, year, for centuries, if that isn't how we become righteous, what was the purpose of the law? And he says, it was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom it was promised would come, till Messiah would come. What does he mean by for the sake of transgressions? Hard for people who have a struggle with what did Paul mean? He was added for the sake of transgressions. Most people think it was. It means that it was added so that we would be able to clearly see our sin against God. In other words, there'd be no doubt about it. We would know where our transgressions lie. And he talks about how the law was mediated through angels and by means of a mediator. And, and not just... Uh, It says, now a mediator is not just one person alone, but God is alone. See, one. Here's what he means by that. That the law was mediated through Moses and all the prophets that came afterwards, right? But the Abrahamic covenant wasn't mediated through a bunch of people. God just made it himself. Verse 21, is the law therefore contrary to the, God's promises? Okay, so here's the question. If you're following Paul, he says, so does that mean that the law 430 years later, was it contrary to what God had promised Abraham, that righteousness would come by faith? Absolutely not. For if the law, now here's important, if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. In other words, if you could keep the law and righteousness could come by that way, sure, righteousness would come by the law. Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin's power, so the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus, the Messiah, to those who believe. He goes on to say that the law there, the law that God gave in in the Sinai covenant, what it did is it just, I mean, it just showed all of us that we're all under the power of sin, That all of us are sinners, that all of us fall short of the glory of God, that none of us can live up to God's standard. And it led us, it helped us understand that righteousness is a gift based on faith in the Messiah, Verse 23, before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. In other words, we didn't understand this clearly, how how faith, how Jesus dying for us would, would free us from the death penalty of the law. Before this faith came, we were confined to the law under death. Verse 24, the law then was our guardian until Messiah so that we could be justified by faith. Verse 24 translated in other Bibles says something like this, the law then was our tutor to lead us to Christ. So here, follow up what Paul's saying. He says, well, what's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law, he says, was to be like a tutor. It was to help us see our sinfulness. It was to help us see that I could never live up enough to merit, I, I couldn't not sin, and so therefore the wages of sin. Remember the, the the third argument was the third argument Paul makes is if you're going to live under the law, the penalty of the law is death, and so therefore you're going to die because you can't live up to it. Here he's saying the law's purpose was never to give us righteousness; it was to help us see our need for a Messiah to die for us. So that we would see that, that by him we can be declared righteous by faith. Because Jesus is going to take the penalty of the law. Verse 25. But since faith has come, we are no longer under, the, under our guardian. For through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have been clothed with Christ There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Messiah, then you are Abraham's seed. You hear that? If you belong to Messiah, whether you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise that he made Abraham. So this is this is his next argument. I mean this is his argument. The purpose of the law. The law was never given so that you and I could could do our best to live up to it and if we managed to live up to it then God would declare us not guilty. God would declare us righteous. It was never given that way. It was given so that we would absolutely see I can't live up to God's standard. I need someone I need someone to save me. I need someone to step in for me because if the wages of sin is death, if if the law of God demands death for my sin, then I have no hope. And so the law was supposed to guide you and lead you to see your need of Jesus so that you would understand that when you put your faith in him, God declares you righteous by him. The law was a tutor. It was a guardian. It was to lead us to the Messiah. And then then, then, then there's this point, point. But I hope you got it, that since Messiah has come and made us righteous by faith, like Abraham, we are no longer under the tutor. We're no longer under the law. We are now sons of God. He says we've been immersed into Messiah. He says we've been clothed with Messiah, which I think is a metaphor to say we've put on the Holy Spirit. We've put on the Spirit of God. So now if you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. In Jesus, if you're free or slave, it doesn't matter. Male or female, those distinctions, if you would, don't matter compared to you having put on Christ. That is the distinction that matters. And then that grand summation in verse 29, let me read it again. And if you belong to the Messiah, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. Because it's not about the, the Sinai covenant anymore; it's about the new covenant. Let me go. Let me skip ahead now to my uh, to my ending. Sorry, this is where it's going to get kind of confusing. So, there's two more arguments. There's two more arguments, and and this is in my notes. Let me say it here. I'll say it next week. I know everybody's probably thinking why does Paul spend so much time on this? Why? I mean, this is not even on, I've said it, I said it every week. It's not on our radar, is it? That we have to keep the Sinai covenant. Nobody in this room thinks that, right? That we need to be somehow under the Sinai covenant. But the reason we don't is because Paul did this. It's because Paul so clearly explained it that we are not under the Sinai covenant but we're under a new covenant in Jesus. And that's why folks all of us didn't have to become part of the of the spiritual nation or the nation of God called Israel because God destroyed that religious system. He destroyed that covenant. Destroyed it. Not the people of Israel. A lot of them died during that destruction of the religious system. But God destroyed that system. And and now he is working through a new covenant he's made with both Jews and Gentiles and anybody who becomes a part of the kingdom by faith. Okay. You say, well, Jimmy, why do you talk about that? Why Why are you spending so much time on this? Because, folks, this is still this can still be an issue. I was talking to a pastor and, and he had a family leave his church because this family started thinking they needed to keep the first covenant laws. And slowly, 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 they abandon they abandoned everything that Paul's talking about here to follow Messiah under the the Sinai covenant. And, and so here's an example for you. Now this is an old quote. This is an old quote, and I don't know that he would hold to this. Exactly. But we probably all know who John Hagee is. He's a famous preacher in San Antonio. But San, San, John Hagee told the Houston Chronicle that he believes Jews already have a covenant with God and do not need to embrace Jesus he said, and I quote, I believe that every Jewish person who lives in the light of the Torah, which is the word of God, has a relationship with God and, and will come to redemption. I'm not trying to convert Jewish people to the Christian faith. In fact, trying to convert Jews is a waste of time. Jews already have a covenant with God that has never been replaced by Christianity. That's a very old quote. It's 30 years old. Okay, So I don't know that, that we all change and we, you know, God's refining and helping us all. But, but I do know that John and others believe, this, this is what they believe. They believe that right now, this, this time that we're in is called the church age and it's a parentheses. It's a parenthesis. And, and so we're coming up to this point and boom, Jesus dies. And we enter this parentheses that we're, we're different than, than the Sinai covenant. But one day God's lifting all of this out And we'll go back to the Sinai covenant and we'll live under the Sinai, Israel will live under the Sinai covenant and God will work through the nation that he set up at Sinai. He'll work through that nation again. Folks, I think the things that Paul is saying in this text, and I know here's, here's where people are going to disagree and that's fine, but I just want to challenge, I want to challenge that thought. I want to challenge that thought that one day God is, that, that, that what Paul says about us being the fulfillment of the Abraham, Abrahamic covenant. We're his seed, heirs, we're the heirs of Abraham. He said earlier in the text, remember that it's the sons of Abraham that are sons by faith, not biology. It just seems so hard for me to understand how this, this I'm talking about when Jesus dies, when Jesus comes, this, this church age, if you would, made of Jews and Gentiles in the first covenant. It's just like, it's like its own self-contained thing that he's going to lift up. And then we're going to go back to the first covenant and we're going to live through, God's going to work through the nation of Israel to represent himself. I think the things that Paul is saying in this letter are problematic to that view, at least a sticky wicket that people have to, uh, have to look at. Everybody follow me there? You don't have to agree with me, but you understand what I'm saying, right? All right. Let me go. Let me give you the two lessons, the two, the two gifts that I believe that we should take home today for ourselves in 2022. Here's the first. It's the gift of justification by faith. The Bible and the Bible justification means to be declared righteous. Here's a gift that God has for each one of us, 2022. Actually, for the last two millennia, this has been the gift of God. Actually, for all eternity, this has been the gift of God, that our sin is erased and covered and done away with. By faith, by faith, not by our efforts, not by, in Galatians three six, Galatians 3.22, 26, Paul reminds us over and over again that righteousness, justification, for us comes to us not because we earn it, but because God graciously gives it to us. Because we trust Him, we believe Him, we seek after Him. And in Galatians three thirty four, He says, Paul plainly says, "This is three twenty four. The law then was a guardian until Messiah, so that we could be justified by faith." See, Jesus is the one that ju- we're justified by faith, but because Jesus takes our sin and bears it upon Himself. We're justified by faith. The reason God can justify us is because Jesus atones for our sin by his death. The Bible says that the righteousness of the law, which if anybody could live by it, you would be righteous, right? Well, Jesus did live by it. He lived it perfectly without sin. And so when he dies, he can die for you and me because you're not righteous and I'm not righteous, but Jesus is righteous. So his death can can stand in for me. The gift of God from this passage is justification by faith. The righteous dies for the unrighteous. Jesus dies for us. And it's like Michael said, it doesn't matter what you've done because Jesus did it all, and if you trust in him, your sin is washed away. Your sin is taken by him. What a gift that God has given us freely by His grace, forgiveness, and righteousness, simply because we're willing to love Him and trust Him and put our faith in Him. Here's the second gift. And the second gift for us today in 2022 is a new identity. Now, a person holds many identities, right? At the same time, they can be a teacher and a father and a friend and a factory worker. Today in our culture... The most important identity factor for you and me has become our race, our ethnicity, or our perceived gender, okay? In fact, our our culture is telling us that one of those is your primary supreme identity, and you ought to to make it so. We should divide ourselves by our supreme identities. You know, I kind of think they have one thing right, but listen to what I'm saying. Paul tells us that because of our faith in Jesus we have a new identity, a supreme identity. And that supreme identity of supreme importance is that we are in Jesus, that we've put on Jesus. Galatians 3.27, for those of you who are baptized into Messiah, have been clothed with Messiah There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you're all one in Messiah Jesus. We're clothed in Jesus. Listen, here's what Paul does not mean. He doesn't mean that you're no longer a Jew. He doesn't mean you're no longer a Gentile. He doesn't mean that you're no longer a man or a woman. He doesn't mean that you're not. See, he told, he said, hey, you can be a slave or not a slave in that culture back then. Jesus didn't change that. You can be a, a... an owner of a business, or you can be an employee in a business. Those things don't change. Those are part of who I am. But what Paul is saying is this that when you come to Jesus, whatever identity you thought was the most important, they, they're not. Doesn't matter what you think about your gender. Doesn't matter what you think about your ethnicity or even your race or any of those things. What matters is that you are in Jesus. What matters is that your identity is with Jesus, that you've put on Jesus. That should be, we should be divided by that. And what what I mean, listen, listen to me. What I mean is that the most important identity factor for all of us should be our love and relationship with Jesus. And it should join all of us together, whatever our other identifying factors might be, whether I'm male or female, or whether I'm a worker or an owner, or whether I'm young or old. It doesn't matter. What unites us together is the fact that Jesus, we belong to Jesus, that we're in Jesus, that we have his identity. It is no longer I who live, Paul says, but what? but Jesus who lives in and through me, right? So regardless of whatever identity factor you might think is, is important, Paul says, there is no more identity factor that should divide you from everyone who is in Christ. We're family, we're together. You are now a son and daughter of God. I didn't get that far into text, but that's what he's going to say in chapter four: "You are a son and a daughter of God, and the Spirit of God lives within you." Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at Baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at Baconscastle.com. To get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed.